0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please take your Bible and open it to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, your Bible. We're going to look at 1 and 2 Samuel as we continue our overview sermon series this morning. But we'll turn to 1 Samuel and we're going to look at chapter 16 for our scripture reading. 1 Samuel 16 We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Before we read it, let me just set up the situation here in the story. So I never thought about that that about this until this week, but David might be the person we have the most information about in all of the Bible. Me, I mean, everything indirectly points to Jesus, so Jesus would be obviously first and foremost. But in terms of direct information, David might be the person with the most information. First and 2 Samuel, the beginning of 1 Kings, all of 1 Chronicles, goes through his life. And we get a, almost a full picture of his life. Not only that, we have his diaries or his journal entries. We got Psalms. So you know you have the story of David told in a very full manner in two, from two different authors and then you got a lot of his journal entries and prayers. It's just amazing. You think about Abraham, Adam, Moses, the Apostle Paul but, but David, we have so much information on David. It's really quite astonishing how big of a picture or how big of a, an amount of, of space he takes up in the Bible. Well, this is the beginning of David's story that we're going to read now from 1 Samuel chapter 16. So look at it with me, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to, anoint for me, you are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel and his sons, uh, when, he, when they arrived, Samuel and his sons and invited them, I'm sorry, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are, all, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. You can imagine how long that would have taken. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ, our King, dwell richly among us. Father, we ask now that you would give us wisdom to understand the glories of Jesus Christ through the life of David, your earlier Messiah. Not quite the first Messiah, but I guess the first Davidic and uh, first Messiah from Judah. We pray that you would open our eyes to understand the story. Help us to be caught up in the story of David. That we might be caught up in the story of Jesus Christ. We want to know you more, Lord Jesus. We want to abide in you. We want your words to abide in us. Because if we don't abide in you and your words don't abide in us, then we can do nothing. We will not bear any fruit but waste our time. So, Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, our Lord and King, King of this church, come now to us here. Meet us here through the book of First and Second Samuel. Teach us who you are. Show us your glory and change us, we pray. Give us a better understanding of your word. Consider, help us to consider what you say. We pray that you give us insight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you heard that there's a spike in COVID cases and that they might ratchet up the, um, the shelter in place regulations in um, not only California, but around the country and even around the world in Europe, it's already happening. Have you guys heard about that? Yeah. That the spike is going back up? If 2020 has taught us anything, it's taught us that we are not in control of our lives. If 2020 has made us long for anything, it's made us long for stability. Stability. Some real stability. We want to be stable. We want peace. We don't only want stability. In a certain sense, we need stability. Singer Bonnie Tyler speaks for more than herself when she sings, Where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night he's got to be strong he's got to be fast and he's got to be fresh from the fight I need a hero you could hear it right I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light he's got to be sure and it's got to be soon and he's got to be larger than life that's that that's the cry of Genesis The cry of the book of Genesis is when Adam and Eve fail and they they die or they eat the fruit and they end up getting kicked out of the garden, God promises a hero, a seed, an offspring from the woman who would crush the serpent's head and be at war with the serpent's offspring. God promised the hero, a seed of the woman. And then when you read through, we find out that the seed is going to be from Abraham's line and there's going to be a great nation along with, or maybe the great nation, maybe as the seed. But then we learn in Genesis 49 verse 10 that even in this great nation made up of 12 tribes that there would be a king, a scepter, a king from the tribe of Judah, a hero from the tribe of Judah who would rule and reign over the great nation, who would bring the great blessing of God to the world, to the cursed nations of the world because we're all cursed in Adam, we're all sinners, we're all doomed to death, we're all damned to die. And God promises a blessing through a great nation and through a hero. So we find out eventually as we keep reading on that this nation is Israel. They are slaves in Egypt, but through Moses, they are freed and redeemed out of Egypt. And they are given a covenant constitution. They are constituted as a nation, a holy nation, the great nation, with an Israelic covenant given through Moses. And then we find out that that's... that's Uh, Genesis, or that's Exodus through Deuteronomy, we learned in Joshua that they enter the land. If they're going to be a people, God promised to Abraham that they would have a land. So in Joshua and Judges, we learn that they get into the land. And they conquer the land. And they rule over the land. But we learned from Judges last week that there was a problem. There was moral chaos and confusion, right? There was confusion and chaos. And it said that... uh, because there was no king, everyone did what was right in their, own, in their own eyes. Remember we talked about that last week? Without a king, mighty and wise, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And so we get to this point in the story of Israel. They're in the land. They're conquering the land generally, but they have problems with other people. So God raises up judges who come and go, who sort of help the people stay faithful for a season, and then they go back into sin. So where is this king? Where's this king who's going to bring order and stability to make this nation the holy nation it's supposed to be, to bring the blessing to all the peoples who are not from Israel? Where's this king going to be? Who is that king? And will he actually successfully do what the judges couldn't do? Would he actually lead the nation, the great nation, to be that holy nation, that royal priesthood who would keep the Israelic covenant and mediate God's blessing to the world? Just like Israel needed that king, as I look out here today in November 2020, you need that king. I need that king. We need a king to lead God's nation to bless us because we are cursed. We need God to lead his people to bless us because we're cursed people. And if we are God's people, we need a king to lead us. Because now if we're that holy nation, that royal priesthood, to bless the nations, we need that king to lead us, don't we? To make our lives significant here in unstable 2020. We don't want to keep trying to secure our own blessing and rule for ourselves. We know that doesn't work well, right? Even as a pastor trying to take control of my own life, my own ministry, my own responsibilities on my own strength. It doesn't work out well when I try to be the king of my own life. When I try to be the king of my own family. Or even here in the ministry at the church. It doesn't go well for us. And every time we try, we, if God is gracious to us, he lets us feel a certain hopelessness and futility of our own efforts, because we are just, frankly, not good enough, not wise enough, not consistent enough to lead and live that holy life that, needs to, that mediates blessing to the world. And so the gospel is, the good news I have for you today is God has provided a king for us. He's provided us a king, and he's provided that king to lead the nation. So here's the main goal of the sermon today. I'm sorry because I thought I printed it in your bulletin and I realized I printed a lot of other things in the bulletin but not the main goal of the sermon. So here it is. Trust God's king to establish us. Trust God's king to establish us in his city so that we bless the nations. Trust God's king to establish you. I'm not just talking about you individually. You, church family. Trust God to establish you in his city so that we, so that you, bless the nations. That's the goal of the Bible. That's the story of the Bible. And we pick, up, pick it up here in the life of David. So let me give you, that. that's the main goal of the sermon. I'll say it one more time. Trust God's king to establish us in his city so that we bless the nations. If you if you want to cut out the so that we bless the nations, that's too much, just cut that off right now. Trust God's king to establish us in his city. So I have a simple goal. I don't have a profound List of all kinds of applications like we did from Judges. Just want to talk about God's King and say we need to trust in God's King this morning. The main idea of the book of Samuel, maybe even to the first readers, is this. Or I'll just t- tell you the main idea in the content. And don't worry about writing this down, just listen. Israel's, actually it's here in your notes. Israel, Israel's life in the land during the Judges was moral chaos and confusion. God used King David to establish his holy nation in Jerusalem and establish his holy nation on David's house, so that all the families of the earth would eventually be blessed through them, as God promised Abraham. So that's the main idea of the book. I have you have that there in your notes. And I even put here in the notes the five points to outline first and second Samuel. Just so you know, first and second Samuel was, is one book to the Hebrews, to the Jews. It was one book. It got broken up into two books when they translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek Old Testament. And um, it's been two books ever since, when people read it and print it. But it's written as one book. I encourage you to read it as one book because it is actually one story. And there is a main goal for the whole thing as one book. So that's what we're gonna cover today. And I already gave you what I think the main idea of the book is. So here are the five, five um, I guess, phases or five points in the book, five stages of the story in the book. Scene one, God chooses David. That's the whole book of First Samuel. Scene two, David takes the throne. Scene three, David takes Jerusalem, his city. Notice we sang a lot of songs about Jerusalem today. Scene four, David fails greatly as the king. And scene five, this is strange. I want to meditate on the strangeness a little bit with you. It ends with David making an offering to the Lord. The book doesn't even end with David's death. It ends with David making an offering and an altar to the Lord. And that's how the book ends. I think there's a point and reason why it ends that way. And we'll get to that in a second. All right, let's jump in now to 1st Samuel um looking at really the whole book chapter 1 to chapter 31 here I'll, I'll just tell the story and if you could um just follow along and turn to verses in the in your Bible with me as we're moving along that might be helpful okay so let's let's go so um we had the period of the judges and then from the period of the judges Eli is the last judge he's not in the book of Judges but Eli is the next judge Eli Eli judges Israel and so um the question is who will be the judge? If everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes without a king, who's going to be the judge to bring in the king- kingship? Will it be Eli? Well, Eli, he was pretty, he was okay as a priest and as a judge, but Eli has a problem. Eli was a sinfully tolerant father of his children. As the priest, his sons were priests, and his sons would take advantage of their priesthood. When people would come to bring sacrifices, they would basically embezzle the riches of the sacrifice. They would take the food before the proper sacrifice. They would um, sexually assault and harass and even impose themselves on women who were coming to make a sacrifice to Yahweh at the tabernacle. And Eli knew these things were going on and he would tell his sons to stop, but he didn't stop his sons. He just told them, sons, it's not a good idea. Stop doing it. But he, let the, he didn't stop them. He just said it. So in one sense, he sinfully tolerated it and God did not tolerate um, Eli's toleration of it. So God said to Eli that your sons are going to die and you're going to die too. Because, and I'm, I've rejected you from being a priest because you haven't been faithful even as a judge over Israel. So the two sons die in a battle and then Eli hears about the news that, the, that his sons died and the ark is taken and Eli, who is overweight, is leaning on a chair. The chair breaks. He falls and breaks his neck and he dies. But before Eli died he had a helper in the tabernacle with him. His name was Samuel. And Samuel became the next judge. Samuel was raised there. Samuel grew in stature and wisdom with, in favor with God and with people. Everyone started recognizing that God was speaking and working through Samuel. And so Samuel becomes the next judge and he's the one who leads Israel with righteousness and integrity and faithfulness. And so um, the people say to Samuel, hey, Samuel, you're getting old. And just like Eli, your sons don't listen either. Your sins are not trustworthy and faithful like you are. Now, it's interesting that God doesn't reject Samuel the way he rejected Eli, which might mean to me that Samuel was a faithful dad who couldn't control his sons even though he tried. So I just want to say two things about Eli and Samuel. God holds parents responsible to correct their kids and to do everything they can within their power and right and love to serve their children. They can't be too passive like Eli was, just saying it and that's enough. That's not enough. If there's more action to take, you need to take more action. At the same time, you can take all the action, do all the right things, but that does not guarantee that your children will end up following Jesus, right? And so Samuel, his sons didn't follow God either. And yet at the same time, God does not rebuke Samuel. And I take that silence as somewhat instructive for us and encouraging for some of you and for some of us though the jury's still out on many of our children who are still living in our homes. So God chooses Samuel over Eli. Where Eli fails, God chooses Samuel to to lead into the kingship. And then through Samuel, Saul becomes the king. Saul is from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm skipping over a lot of story here. You can read it on your own. But here's the question with Saul's life. Will Saul be the faithful king to lead Israel to covenant faithfulness to be that great and holy nation who's going to bless the world? Is Saul the man? Is Saul the king? That's the question. And Saul starts off pretty good. He starts off pretty humble. He's not full of himself. He's humble and he he leads well. The Spirit of God, Samuel anoints Saul and the Spirit of God compels Saul to fight battles and uh, people are even cynical of Saul being the leader. And then some people start threatening one of the cities, Jabesh Gilead. And so Samuel or Saul says, He he, um, cuts up an ox and says, anyone who doesn't follow me is going to be like this ox. And so all of Israel rises up behind the spirit-empowered, spirit-compelled King Saul. And they rise up and they dominate the Ammonites. They dominate the battle and everyone starts celebrating King Saul as the king. They even want to kill the people who are cynical and skeptical of King Saul. Let's kill all the people who didn't vote for King Saul. And King Saul says, no, we're not going to do that. God has given us a great victory today. We're going to celebrate God's victory. So King Saul starts off good. But then King Saul has another battle. King Saul had two failures. The first failure was this. In one of his battles, as the king, he's not authorized to make sacrifices and burnt offerings. But Samuel from Ephraim, strangely as a judge, is allowed to make these offerings. So Saul is supposed to wait for seven days for Samuel to come to make the offering to receive the Lord's blessing before they go to war. Now, if you can imagine an army on this side and your army's over here and you guys are ready for battle and you're waiting for Samuel, the judge to make the offering. So you have Yahweh's blessing to go into war. And he says he's there in seven days and Samuel's not there in seven days. So Saul is like looking at his watch exactly seven days on the dot. You got to be on time as some cultures like, you know, to, to really make sure everyone is on time. Everything starts on time. So Samuel, you have to be here on time. Samuel's late. And it's almost like as soon as Samuel's late, Saul is looking at his men getting scared. They're scared of the enemy right across the line. So Samuel, Saul is like, you know what? I got to do this. I got to handle this myself. So Saul says, give me the offering. Samuel's late. He takes the offering. He offers the sacrifice, the burnt offering to the Lord. And guess who walks in as the offering is starting to be burnt up to the Lord? Who walks in? Samuel. Samuel. He's a little late. Not a lot. He's a little late. And Samuel says, what have you done? Why didn't you wait for me? And he says, well, you were a little late. I need to make the sacrifice because my people are getting scared and I didn't know what, what to happen. I didn't know what was going to happen. I need to take on this battle. You weren't here. And so Samuel and turn to um, this is in first Samuel 13. So turn there. First Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13, verse 10, it says this. Just as he finished the offering, or the burnt offering, Sa- Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him and asked, "What?" Samuel asked, what have you done? Saul answered, when I saw the troops were deserting me, and you didn't come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought Yahweh's favor. So I forced myself, you hear that? So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul you have been foolish you have not kept the command of Yahweh your your God uh, the command Yahweh your God gave you it was at this time Yahweh would have permanently established your reign over Israel but now your reign will not endure Yahweh has found a man after his own heart and Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what Yahweh has commanded so there's Sam, Saul's first sin that he forced himself to make the sacrifice. Well, that wasn't his only failure. If you go to ch- uh, two chapters later, go to chap- chapter 14. Saul makes another dumb decision, but we'll skip over that for the sake of time. Go to chapter 15. Saul's next big problem is um, God says, look at, look at verses 2 and 3 of 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15 verse 2 says this. Um, This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Destroy everything they have. Don't spare them. Kill men and women, infants, nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Wipe them all out as an act of judgment. Now, if you're not a Christian, this might trouble you. We've talked about the last two sermons, but let me just say very shortly, God is God and God is just. He doesn't command us to, to do this today, but this was an act of judgment because the Amalekites had um, sucker punched Israel and um, attacked them when they were traveling through the wilderness trying to get to the promised land. And so this is part of God's judgment on Amalek. So um, what, is supposed to, what is Saul supposed to kill? Everything. What is he supposed to kill? everything so what does Saul do he wins the battle and then you get to verse 13 it says this in verse 13 so saul comes samuel comes when samuel came to him saul said now uh, they didn't kill or i'm sorry in verse 8 and 9 they spare the king agag and the best of the sheep the goats and the cattle in verse 9 and the choice animals as well as the young rams and the best of everything else so they destroyed everything but the best of everything They kept the best and destroyed the rest. And then Samuel comes, and what does Saul say in verse 13? May the Lord bless you, Samuel. What does he say? I have what? You guys see that in verse 13? I have what? I have carried out the Lord's instructions. There's for honesty and self-perception. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. I did what God wanted me to do. Verse 14, Samuel replied, Then what is the sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? And Saul said, here's Saul's answer, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and they spared the best sheep, goats and cattle in order to, hold on Samuel, in order to offer a sacrifice to Yahweh, your God. But the rest were all destroyed. We destroyed everything else. Well, Samuel's not impressed, as you can imagine. In verse 18, go to verse 18. Samuel is saying, you, God sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder, rush on the plunder, and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? What does will say in, in response, verse 20, but I did obey the Lord. You're wrong, Samuel. I did obey the Lord. Saul answered, I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder. The best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to Yahweh your God at Gilgal. What is the problem? (laughs) Do you guys see the problem here? Saul doesn't see the problem here. And so Samuel says in verse 22, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So there's clear clear response. You are sinning. Stop making excuses. God said, destroy everything. You did not destroy everything. You sinned. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words because, because I have a reason though, because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So there you have it. Samuel is rejected. I'm sorry, not Samuel. Saul is rejected as being king. And the issue is that Saul ultimately does not place himself under God's word. And this is the problem with the kingship. They wanted a king like the nations. But you know what the kings of the other nations do? They rule by their own will. If you're going to be the king of Israel... Who's really the king of Israel? God is, right? And if you're going to be the king of Israel, you need to write a copy of the Mosaic covenant, the Israelic covenant, and you need to follow it because you're a king under authority. You're not the ultimate authority if you're the king of Israel. You're under authority. But Saul did not submit to God's word. He rejected the word of the Lord as his final authority. And because of that, God rejected him because he was a king like all other peoples. Both times, Saul provided excuses to minimize his responsibility and deflect culpability. In Saul's mind, it wasn't ultimately his fault. The first time it was, Samuel, you were late. That's why I did it. Excuses. Lame excuses. Second time, oh, it was the people. I was scared of the people. Actually, I did obey. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. I, I destroyed everything else except the best to offer to the Lord. Well, obedience is better than sacrifice. Well, it was because, because I was scared of the people. Excuses. Lame Excuses. Sloppy obedience is disobedience. If God gives clear commands and you obey sloppily, you disobey the commands. God does not stutter. It's written in a book for us today. Just read it. It says what it says. Interpret it correctly and then obey it. You don't have the right. I don't have the right. Pastors, church members, kings have no right to sloppily obey God and call it obedience. You reject God's word, Saul rejected God's word, and God rejected Saul from being king. When someone points out sin in your life, or when you feel convict- convicted by reading scripture, do you minimize the sin and do you look for excuses? Do you always have a reason and a good explanation why you failed this time? Or do you hear God's actual commands and take responsibility? Are you content with sloppy obedience as best you can? As best you can do it in your own eyes? Or do you seek to obey the actual commands of God written in the text? Well, Saul was rejected and now David is anointed. We read the anointing of David in chapter 16. David is now anointed as king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. God doesn't look at outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Saul was great looking in appearance. My kids were laughing last night as we read 1 Samuel 16 for family chapel because they said they've, they've been memorizing 1 Samuel 16, 7, that God doesn't look at, uh, humans look at what is visible, but God looks at the heart. And then it says when it gets to David that he's handsome and has beautiful eyes. It's like, wait, what? I thought God doesn't care about appearance. But, um, anyways, but the point is that God does look at the heart, and David is a man after God's own heart, according to 1 Samuel 13, 14. So now the question is David is anointed with oil by Samuel the prophet and judge question if if Saul is not the king to make this nation the great nation to be a blessing to the nations question now is is David that king what do you guys think is David that king will David be that king to make Israel the holy nation it needs to be to be a blessing to the nations is David the king well when David is anointed by by Samuel David the holy spirit god's spirit empowers David god's spirit leaves Saul God's Spirit now empowers King David, or anointed David. He's not quite king yet. And then David serves Saul in chapter 16. In chapter 17, I wish I could do a story on this. I'm not going to do a story. David kills Goliath. Read that for yourself in 1 Samuel 17. But what it, here's the proof you know that God's Spirit is with God's man. In the Judges, how did you know that Samson was God's judge? Or how do we know that Gideon was God's judge? The Spirit of God, what? came upon them. And how did how did the people see it? They can't see the spirit on the person. How do they know that this man has a spirit? Because they win the battle. They win a battle that they're not supposed to win. They win a battle that when you look at the stats, you look at the lineups, you look at the, you assess both teams, both armies, and you look at the situation, you're like, this guy's not supposed to win. And then he wins by the spirit of the Lord. That's how you know that God's spirit has anointed that person. And so even David said, when he looked at Goliath, he said, I'm not going to kill you by sword or spear, but I'm going to kill you by the Lord, by the Spirit of God. And so David himself recognizes that it's not by might. It's not by power. It's not by strategy. It's not by giftedness. It's not by knowledge. It's not by numbers. It's by the Spirit of God that God delivers His people and shows who His anointed ones are. So David defeats Goliath in the power of the Spirit and proves that he, like the judges before him, is endowed with the Spirit of God. Well, Saul quickly becomes jealous of David. First, Saul loves David as his own son. Then people start singing, "David has, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. And in that, that song, Saul gets jealous and he tries to kill David, his son-in-law. Eventually, David marries uh, so- Saul's second daughter and uh, Saul tries to kill him. But David is patient. He's trusting God and he loves Saul. But Saul is serious. He's not messing around when he tries to kill David. David is playing music for Saul, and then Saul tries to throw a spear to kill him. It's almost like Saul is a bad shot, or at least David's really quick. Saul would throw a spear to try to kill David, pin him to the wall, and David would escape. You know how serious uh, Saul was about killing David? Look at 1 Samuel 22, verses 18 and 19. Turn to 1 Samuel 22, verses 18 and 19. Saul is not messing around. So David goes to hide from Saul in the tabernacle. He runs into the priest. The priest gives him food, and the food that's reserved for the priest, the priest gives the food to David, and he gives him Goliath's sword. David takes off. Then Saul comes and finds out that David was there, and now Saul is going to confront the priest, and this is what what happens. He confronts the priest and says, why are you conspiring against me with David? They say, we're not conspiring against you. So what what does Saul say? Verse 18, 1 Samuel 22, 18. So the king said to Doeg, Go and execute the priests. Kill them. So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. The first soldiers he told didn't want to do it because they were the priests. On that day he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. That's priestly clothing. He struck down Nob. He also struck down the whole city of Nob, the city of the priests, with the sword. And notice, what did, what did he kill there? Both men and women, infants, nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. Isn't that interesting? Saul actually killed everyone and everything. Finally. But this, was this God's command? No. When God commanded Saul to kill everyone and everything, did Saul do it? No. no. And now that Saul feels threatened by David, by priests who are not threatening Saul, Saul kills 85 priests... He kills the whole city Men, women, children, nursing infants Oxen, sheep, not even the best of them He kills them all Not because God commanded it Because it's a threat to who? It's a threat to himself See, when God gives a God-centered command command to Saul Saul won't do it But when Saul is self-centered Will he do something like wipe out a whole city? Yes, he will It's crazy how motivated we can be Depending on what our true center is Whatever our true center is in our lives, our true object of worship, our true God, we will do whatever. Or to use New Testament words, we will we would even take up our own cross and die every day for our true God. We'd kill. We'd do whatever it takes to have our true God, our true center. And for Saul, we re- we see here what his true center is. Well, David escapes. He runs. David spares Saul's life twice. First, he cuts off Saul's robe when Saul is sleeping. He shows it to Saul and Saul says, I'm so sorry. You're right. You're going to be king. Then he leaves him alone. He comes back later in 1 Samuel 27, 26. And he takes Saul sleeping again. He takes his water bottle and his, jet, his uh, spear. And then Saul goes out and David says, I could have killed you again, but I won't do it. I promised God I will not do it. And why won't David do it? Look at 1 Samuel 26, 9 through 11. 1 Samuel 26, 9 through 11 says this. David said to Abishai while Saul is sleeping don't destroy Saul for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent David added as the Lord lives the Lord will certainly strike him down either his day will come or he and he will die or he will go into battle and perish however because of Yahweh the Lord I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed instead take the spear and water jug by his head and let's go so why won't David kill Saul because he's what The Lord's what? The Lord's anointed. Who does does David trust? The Lord. The Lord will take Saul in his time, far be it from me, to take matters into my own hand. Well, Saul repents again. By the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies. All right, so Saul dies in 1 Samuel 31. Some application here. For us, we want to be men and women, boys and girls after God's own heart like David. We want to be filled with the Spirit. We want to be humble. We want to be courageously engaging in battle like David. We want to be victorious like David. We want to be patient. We want to suffer well when we're being persecuted and chased like David and misunderstood and misrepresented. We want to trust God in all things just like David. But even more than wanting to be like David, we need a hero like David for us to save us and to fight the battle for us. Who is the hero of Bethany Baptist Church who is your hero if you're not a Christian who is your hero who guides you and guards your life not just for a season but who can guard you and guide you in a way that no other human can the good news is that God has chosen a king to establish his people in his city so that they would bless the nations so here's the main goal again trust God's king to establish us in his city so that we bless the nations okay so Saul dies let's go to second Samuel now we're halfway done with the with at least the in terms of chapters. We've done 31 chapters. We've got twenty-five more to go. Twenty-four more to go. Okay. So what happens next? Point two, David takes the throne, chapters one through five of 2 Samuel. I'm just gonna say this very briefly, and we're gonna go to point three. David mourns Saul's death in chapter one. In chapter two, David is made king of Judah in the south, but not the other tribes of the north. Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is made the king. But then in chapter 4 Ishbosheth is murdered and assassinated by guys who want to get on David's good side. So they kill Saul's son. They cut his head off and they go to David through the night and they go to David and say, hey, we got your enemy right here. And they hold up the head. And David said, you assassinated the king of Israel and you think that I'm going to reward you? And he calls his men to kill those assassins. And so David becomes the king of all Israel in chapter five, verses one through five. All right. Let's go to Second Samuel chapter five, verses one through five. That's point two. David takes the throne, first of Judah for seven and a half years, and then of Israel for thirty-three more years. He reigns for forty years before David is done. But that's um, so David becomes king of all Israel in chapter five, verses one through five. That's point number two. You guys tracking with me? Yeah. So point number one, David, God chooses David. Point number two, David takes the throne. Point number three, David takes Jerusalem. David takes Jerusalem. So in chapter five. We see, look at just one verse in chapter 5, look at 5-7. After David becomes king of all of Israel, it says in verse 7, Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. This is important in the Bible. Just like David being anointed, you read that and you're like, wow, that is so significant. When David takes Jerusalem, it's called Zion and the city of who? City of David here, but you're right, who said God. Peter said God because the city of David becomes the city of God but not yet so it becomes a city of David in chapter 5. In chapter 6 David dances and we had a discussion on Friday should we be dancing on Sundays you can leave that for your own takeaway discussion later but David dances with all his might what does it look like for members of the church to be dancing with all their might to the Lord that's what David's doing He's, he's dancing so hard his feet have to be hurting by the end of this dance He's dancing so hard to the Lord. And why is he dancing so hard? Because the Ark of the Covenant, which I wish I could tell you stories of the Ark of the Covenant in 1 and 2 Samuel. You have to read them on your own. But the Ark of the Covenant is now moving to where? Jerusalem, Zion, the city of David. The Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of who? God. God spoke to Moses on top of the Ark of the Covenant. God, from the Ark of the Covenant, spoke to Moses. From the Ark of the Covenant, God spoke to Joshua. From the Ark of the Covenant, God speaks. That was called the Tent of Meeting because you met with God there in the Holy of Holies at the Ark of the Covenant. And now the Ark of the Covenant is coming to Jerusalem, to Zion. The city of David is now becoming the city of God. God is moving into Jerusalem on God's holy hill. It's likely that the Garden of Eden was God's holy hill and God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, didn't He? And now Jerusalem, the city of David, God's becomes David's holy hill, becomes God's holy hill. And God is moving in to Jerusalem in chapter 6. David captures Jerusalem in chapter 5. God moves into Jerusalem in chapter 6 through the Ark of the Covenant. And David dances with all his might. And then in chapter 7, David wants to finish it off because he's the king, right? What is the king supposed to do? He's supposed to get the nation to be a holy nation so that they what? Get Israel to be a holy nation so that they would what? Somebody, anybody. So that they would bless all the other nations. That's the promise to Abraham, right? The world is cursed. We need God's blessing of life. The life, God's blessing of life will come to all the families of the earth through the great nation of Israel. And David says, and what does that blessing look like? Adam and Eve lived with God where? In the Garden of Eden, God's holy hill. So what does it look like to have that blessing again? To be back On God's holy hill, living with God in his presence, with God moving back in. So David's like, let's finish this. Let's get back to Eden now. This is it. I'm the king. David realizes Saul was from Benjamin. David is from what tribe? Judah. And when David's reading his Bible, he's reading Genesis 49, he says, wait, the king, maybe the king who's going to crush the serpent is coming from what tribe? Judah. Saul's not from Judah. I'm from Judah. Maybe I'm the one. Who's going to be the one to crush? The serpent. This is crazy. God made me the king. The least of my brothers, the youngest of all my brothers, the eighth brother. And so David says, I'm going to finish it now. So how does David want to finish it in 2 Samuel 7? God, David's looking at his palace. I'm the king. I'm dominating. I got a nice palace, but the Ark of Covenant is sitting in what? A canopy. It's under a tent. How could I be living in a palace And the ark of God live in a tent. Nah, we're finishing this. God has moved in here. we got to get him all decked out. we got to get him a house. We're going to build a temple. I'm going to build a temple for Yahweh. So God moves back in his holy hill, and then we can become that great light of blessing to the nations. So David wants to do it. The prophet Nathan says, go do it in 2 Samuel 7. And then um, Nathan goes to sleep, and God says to Nathan, why did you um, you tell David to do it? Tell David not to do it. So look at 2 Samuel 7. What does god say instead this is maybe the most important passage in first and second samuel It actually it is for the bible so let's read it a little bit here at length second samuel 7 verse 4 that night the word of the lord came to nathan go to my servant david and say are you to build me a house to dwell in from the time i brought israel out of egypt the redemption until today i have dwelt i have not dwelt in a house instead i've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling um, so he says why haven't you have I said to any of my shepherds why haven't you built built me a house of cedar verse 8. So now this is what you're to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock to be a ruler of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you are wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like the greatest of greatest on earth. Who else was promised a great name besides David? Abraham. So this sounds like an Abrahamic covenant, almost like that level of covenant. I will designate a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them. What does God plant? What do we plant? We don't plant people. We plant what? Cities. Did someone say cities? Churches? No. Seeds. We plant seeds and seeds become plants, right? And God, what did God plant in Genesis chapter two? He planted a garden, but now God is saying, I'm going to plant my people. Garden of Eden, planted by God. Now, I'm going to plant Israel so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. So I'm going to build the town. Don't don't build me a house. I'll plant my people. Evildoers will not continue to impress them. Verse 11, I'll give you, you rest from all your enemies. And here's the promise now in verse 12. Or verse 11 says, The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. You're not going to make a house for me. I'll make a house for you. When your time comes to rest with your fathers, David, I will raise up after you, your descendant. Who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish his throne the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. And he will be my son. Who's God talking about there? Say it out loud. Who's God talking about there? Uh, Solomon. Who else? Someone else said someone else. Jesus. Well, what is it? Well, read on. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. Is that referring to Jesus? No. So yes, yeah, Solomon in the first instance. But my faithful love will never leave him, Solomon, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So here, David will get a great name. His house, the house of Judah, house of David will be established. The kingship will last forever. Solomon, his next son, will build him a temple. David, you're not going to do it, but my, your son will. But when he, when he goes astray... I will, um, I'll discipline him, but I won't reject him and the dynasty the way I did Saul. And you will have a house, a dynasty with a kingship forever. So here, this is a great blessing for David. At the same time, this shows us that David's not the final king. David's going to what? He's going to die. He's going to have a son and he's going to take over. So David is a great king, but he's not the final king. So we need to look to to the final king who's going to rule forever. And it's not David And it's not Solomon, as we're going to learn next Sunday, Lord willing, when we study the books of kings. Let me apply this and we'll move on. Look for a hero in your life that you can really count on for the rest of your life. Because even a great hero like David is going to die. Church family, look for a hero and king to rule this church and its members. Because pastors will come and go. Members will come and go. But Christ will be here forever. Children, it's good to count on your parents as long as you can. But kids, as as children, children, as you get older, you start realizing that people die. And if you're not old enough, sorry, parents, you're gonna have to have conversations with your kids if they're paying attention. But kids get old enough to start saying, mommy, I don't want you to die. Daddy, I don't want you to die. And they're maturing and realizing that death is real. And I want to tell you, children, we don't want your parents to die either. But they will. We need a king and a hero who will last even longer than our parents. Children, who are you going to lean on, ultimately, for your rescue, for your strength, for your protection? Who will be your hope in life and death? David continues to dominate in the battles in 2 Samuel 8 through 10. And so David establishes his kingship. Okay, so just going through, God chooses David as king, point one, point two. David takes the throne, point three. David takes Jerusalem and continues to dominate the nations. God provides an eternal dynasty. Praise God for that. There's going to be an, an eternal Davidic dynasty. And now, point four. Now, we said David's going to die, but he has other failures besides the fact that he's mortal. David fails God and Israel greatly in chapters 11 through 24. Let me summarize David's three failures briefly. I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to look at my notes because there's too much there, and we're a little bit, we're almost out of time here. So, David's three great sins. Number one, David commits adultery. I wish I could stay and tell you the story. But the point here is David should have been fighting in battle, but he wasn't. Instead, he was at home, so he he sleeps he sees a woman, he sexually harasses and assaults her in a sense because he's using his power. He's a king. This is just a a, a citizen. He calls her into his room, he sleeps with her, he sends her back home, she gets pregnant, he's trying to cover up, and it's one of his thirty seven top soldiers. He has 37 top soldiers in Israel, and this is the wife of one of his 37 top soldiers. So he sends for his top soldier, come back home. He says, let's eat. How's the battle going on? Go, go home. Just hang out with your wife. He's trying to cover up the pregnancy. There are no DNA tests back then. It's going to be fine. Well, he doesn't go home. He says, how can I go home when I'm fighting for you and for the kingdom? I can't go home and relax with my wife. It's fighting time, which is already a rebuke to David, right? So David says, all right, fine, hang out here and I'll send you back tomorrow. So he gets, he gets Uriah drunk and he says, maybe he'll go home drunk and sleep with his wife. Well, he's drunk and he tries to get him to go home but he passes out in the palace and doesn't go home. So attempt number two, cover up, fails. So his third attempt is he writes a letter to Joab, the general, saying, put Uriah in the hard- hardest part of the battle so he dies. Pull back the soldiers with a special signal that Uriah doesn't know so he dies in battle. So Uriah a man of character, doesn't want to go sleep with his wife when his boys are out at war, doesn't want to go when, his ki- when he needs to protect his king, when his king is the one who slept with and assaulted his wife. Uriah is such a man of character, he takes that note and he goes back to the general without reading the note. His own death warrant. He's so faithful to David, so faithful to God, so faithful to God's people, he won't even read the note that says that, the note that's his murder, his murder note. And so Joab reads a note, carries out the order. Uriah is killed. And David, for a whole year, or almost a whole year, hides his sin. Doesn't confess. Read Psalm 32 if you want to know how David felt hiding your sin. Doesn't feel good to hide sin and be a hypocrite. So David, um, David, David is confronted by Nathan. Nathan rebukes him. And unlike Saul, David repents immediately. He doesn't make excuses like Saul. Well, it was because I was... I was you know feeling it that night and I I should have been out at war but I was tired no doesn't make any excuses he owns his sin he confesses his sin and God says now there's gonna be trouble in your house so that's David's first failure okay he's not the king we ultimately need second failure of David is he's a passive dad sort of like Eli his oldest son so now murder and sexual immorality is going to be troubling David in his own family David has eight wives and he has sons from each of these wives, seven of these before Solomon. And his oldest, Amnon, is supposed to be the king. Amnon likes his sister, his half-sister from David's third wife. And he, he um, ends up raping his half-sister. He finds a way to trick her. He rapes her. David finds out, and you know what he does? He gets mad. And you know what he does after that? Nothing. Nothing. He just gets furious, and then he lets it go. So, Absalom, the third oldest son, who's the full brother of Tamar, waits for two years and then kills his brother. So now you got sexual immorality and sexual assault in the family, just like David's sin, right? And then you got murder in the family, just like David's sin of murder, right? Now you got in David's own house. What goes around, in a sense here at least, for David, part of his, not his judgment, but the consequences of his sin, is it comes right back around to his own home. So, um,. Eventually, Absalom, um, he, he, he's banished. He comes back. Then God, David welcomes, him, welcomes him, him back after several years. Then Absalom leads, leads a revolt, and there's a civil war. So now Absalom is trying to kill David. Absalom, David has to flee out of Jerusalem. Absalom sleeps with David's concubines. He sets up a tent on the roof of the, the palace, and he sleeps with them in the tent in broad daylight. Clearly, Absalom's in the tent with David's concubines. Everyone says, yeah, Absalom has drawn the line. He's going for it. And so he chases David. Absalom ends up getting killed. David mourns Absalom's death. David's house is a mess. His family's a mess. His daughter was raped. His two sons are dead. In David's passive parenting, where he doesn't deal with his children the way God calls him to deal with it, presumably like maybe Samuel did. All right, so that's David's second failure. David's last failure, David continues to be delivered by um, by God's grace. David's last failure is in the very last chapter. Let's go to the very last chapter now. We're at the end. 2 Samuel 24. David decides. Now it says here in verse chapter 24, verse 1, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Again. So God is mad at Israel. And when God's mad at Israel, he wants to judge Israel, punish Israel. So he stirred up David against them. And then David sins. This is crazy. I'm opening up a big theological question I can't take time to answer here in the last few minutes of a sermon. But God is sovereign even over temptation and sin. God doesn't tempt anyone, it says in James 1 13, God can't be tempted by evil, he tempts no one. But here, God sovereignly ordains and stirs up David without tempting David, if you can put those things together. Look at 1 Chronicles 21, 1 because it says Satan did it there. But here it says God stirs up David to count a census. And why is that a sin? It's a sin because God told the kings, even in Deuteronomy, don't take pride in your power. Take pride in who? In the Lord, right. In God himself. Don't take pride in your power. Don't take pride in your riches. And David wants to count his soldiers to see how big and bad and powerful he is and his army is at the end of his life. It could be almost like uh, Christians counting members of their church in numbers just for the sake of numbers. For for finding rest and pride in the numbers. Here, David wants to count to find pride in it. And God hates it, so God sends a plague. He gives David three choices of punishment. Three years, three months, or three days of punishment. Three years of famine, three days of running from enemies, from enemy um, military, or three days of plague from God. David chooses three days of plague, And so God sweeps a plague across Israel. Remember, God's angry at Israel, right? For their sin and their unfaithfulness. And you know how many die? God kills 70,000 Israelites in this plague. The angel of the Lord is killing people, sweeping across with a plague. And David is praying. He sees the angel. David is looking up and saying, stop, stop. Just kill me. It's my fault. Kill me. Kill me. And God tells the angel to stop. At the exact point where he wants him to stop as he's traveling, which is the top of Jerusalem, the highest part of the hill, which is a threshing floor. Remember, threshing floors where you 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 throw up um, the wheat, and the um, what is it? The chaff gets blown away. It's at the highest part where the wind where the wind blows. It's a threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, the angel of death, angel of Lord stops right there, and then God command and then God stops the plague. At least he, he halts the plague. And then God sends a word to the prophet Gad to tell David, build an altar for me and make an offering to me right here. So David goes to Arana. He says, I need this place. I need to buy it off you. I need to buy this place and make it an altar for Yahweh. This is, the, this is how the book ends. So I want to talk about why does this book end this way? It's weird. It doesn't end with David's death. It ends right here. This is the climax of the book. This is weird. And so, um, so David buys the, the field he makes a sacrifice and a burnt offering to Yahweh, it says in 2 Samuel 24. You guys see that? And look at the very end, verse 25, the very last verse of the book. He built an altar to Yahweh there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. This is the very last verse of this whole epic. Then Yahweh was receptive to prayer for the land. And what, did the, and what happened? The plague of Israel, what? It ended. God ended killing people by a sacrifice being killed in their place. This is what we call substitution. This is the gospel, right? That God forgives sinners who deserve death. Now, if you're not a Christian, understand this. We're all sinners. We all deserve death because we're sinners. Damned before a holy God. But God would take the sacrifice here, this burnt offering, and stop killing sinners. Stop the plague. And in a similar way, God would do that for sinners today. Now, why is this significant? Why does the book end here? David, did, did David build the temple? Yes or no? No, but did David get Jerusalem, the city of God? Yes or no? He did establish God's city, right? But he wasn't allowed to establish the, the temple. But David's life here, even at the very end, is pointing to the future past, David. You know what's going to happen at this altar place? At the very top of Jerusalem, the top of the hill, where this altar is being built, this is the place where what's going to be built? The temple. So God will build a temple here where the sacrifices will be made and the priests will function and God will live there permanently to bless His people through a sacrificial offering in the place of His people. And we know 1,000 years after David, on that same hill of Jerusalem, right outside the temple gates, right outside the gate of Jerusalem, Jesus, the Lamb of God, dies on the cross as an offering For sinners. He dies for sinners. And he rises from the dead, and the the veil in the temple is torn in two. So now people have access to live with God on God's holy hill because King Jesus dies for sinners and rises from the dead. If you're not a Christian, this is the good news. You can have forgiveness from your sins. You can have you can be restored to God. You can have a relationship with God through King Jesus, who died for your sins and rose from the dead. If you will repent from your sins, And repent from your own self-righteousness and your own righteousness and your own goodness and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That's number five. That's point five. David makes an offering to the Lord. So let me just recap here before we close the story of Israel to this point. Through Moses, God promises to Abraham a great nation with land and a blessing to bless all the nations. And he promises there's going to be a king. Through Moses, do they get all that? No, they just get a a national covenant and they get out of slavery to Egypt. They get redemption. With Joshua, they get the land, right? And with Judges, they get the land. And then, now with David, at the the end of the Judges, they get a king from Judah. They get a Davidic covenant, so they get an eternal kingship through David's house. And they get the city of God, Jerusalem, where God will reign And from that place, God will bless all people groups. And we're going to learn about that next week from the book of Kings. But the point here is the promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. God will raise up a great nation with a great king and a great city. And God will live in that city and he will bless the nations through his people. But David was not that hero. Jesus is the hero that we need. For us, we know all of this is fulfilled in Christ. Christ brings us redemption from slavery to sin and death. Jesus is the one who inaugurates the new covenant. Moses does the old covenant. uh, Joshua brings them into the land. Jesus is the one who's going to bring us into the eternal land. He is the the, the crucified and risen king. Um, Jesus is the one who makes us the great nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, to be a blessing to southeast Los Angeles and to all the nations of the world. And one day, Jesus will secure for us the new Jerusalem. Like David secured Jerusalem, we will live in the new Jerusalem to come forever and ever and ever. And so, just like David is a picture of the true king, what's the main goal for us? Trust God's king, Jesus. Trust King Jesus to establish you, Bethany Baptist Church, so that we, the holy nation of God, bless our neighbors here in Bellflower, in southeast Los Angeles, and all the way to the unreached ethnic people groups of the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would trust in King Jesus. We thank you that he came from David's house, from the city of David, born in Bethlehem, died in Jerusalem to save us sinners from our sins. Thank you that he doesn't fail the way David does. He never commits adultery, never murders.